Support for the trail less traveled comes from New West Knife Works and the Mountain Man Toy Shop, offering American-made knife art and singular tools for the kitchen and field. New West Knife Works is located in Jackson Hole, Park City, Napa Valley, and at newwestknifeworks.com. Welcome to The Trail Less Traveled, an adventure series dedicated to taking you back to mankind's earliest form of entertainment, storytelling. Missoula, Montana is a mecca for outdoor enthusiasts, and each week we will bring you tales of outdoor adventures both near and far, as well as adventure information and inspiration and a few tunes to set the mood. You can read more about the show online at traillesstravel.net. And now here's your host, Grand Canyon Whitewater Guide, yoga instructor, and master of the didgeridoo, Mandela. This afternoon, the trail less traveled is being recorded at Lake Missoula Tea Company here in Missoula, nestled underneath the mountains. It's a beautiful, crisp winter day, and I'm sitting in the back of Lake Missoula Tea Company with the owners, Jake and Heather. It is just wonderful back here. It smells of teas from around the world, and I'm so grateful that they both took some time out of their busy schedule to meet with me on the trail less traveled. So thank you both. Heather, my first question for you is, where did you grow up, and how was adventure a part of your childhood? Well, I'm actually a Montanan. I grew up down in the Bitterroot Valley in Stevensville, Montana, at the base of St. Mary's Peak. I'm the oldest of seven kids. Went to school in Stevensville for my whole entire primary and middle school and high school education. Growing up, you're asking about adventure. A lot of our adventure was going out in the woods, you know, doing a lot of backpacking. My dad would take my brothers and I, I have sisters also, but I remember mostly going with my brothers and going up to like Ranger Peak and camping up there and hiking peaks going to the rivers a lot, going on lots of drives through the mountains. I grew up in the mountains. My mom was from Arizona, so we would go down almost every year, get in the car, pack in the car with my mom, and we would go down and see our relatives down there. My dad's family was from California, and I remember at one point, my dad made it down to Arizona, and he and I hitchhiked over to see his family in California. I don't remember if I wanted to do it or not, but I know that I was learning how to read at the time, and I remember my first word being Shell, like a Shell gas station, and that was in California with my dad. I don't remember the details around it other than I can see the word, and that was the word that I learned how to read at that time. So, you know, I think a lot of my adventure spirit came from reading a lot. I didn't grow up with a TV, so kind of a bigger way into the world was reading, and I read a ton. I was really interested in books from Europe and about World War II and experiences with people that they had during World War II, history, lots about Native Americans. So I had that really strong curiosity when I was young, and I always wanted to go. One of my first traveling out of the country trips was to Canada with my best friend. And I think I was a junior in high school, and my parents let us go up to, we wanted to go see the Calgary Stampede. And she was a year older than me, so she was graduating. She'd graduated that year, and I think she was taking off to Tucson. 
we went to Calgary and it was stampede time and we couldn't find a hotel. So this was pre phones, no cell phones. And we're like, well, we'll just go to Edmonton then. So we drove up to Edmonton and we ended up staying in Edmonton for, I don't know, like maybe five or six days and then traveling back down again through Banff, just hanging out in Banff a little bit too. And I remember just the mountains and it being one of the most beautiful places in the world and coming back down. I had this desire to go all the time. And when I was young, I actually wanted to be a stewardess because I could go places. You know, you're in rural Montana, and this was a long time ago, and your exposure to the rest of the world wasn't that big. So I thought, okay, that's a way to do it. And then over time, that idea morphed, and I was going to be a nanny. Because if I was a nanny, I could go to big cities and I could travel. You know, and that's probably not unusual for people that, you know, during that time, you know, your window into the world was letters, books maybe movies, but it's pretty limited. Somewhere along the line, I realized I wasn't going to do that. And I ended up graduating a half a semester early from high school and starting a semester early for myself. I started college when I was 17. Um, I started at the U of M. That kind of adventure, I think, was probably in me all along. Something that helped, I think, kind of develop that too is the summer that I graduated, I went to the U of M. Following that, my friend Jane and I, we both got jobs for the Forest Service. So that was a really good way to make money at that time. I couldn't have gotten another job at that age to make that kind of money. And for something to kind of fit my personality and lifestyle, I got positioned onto the Sula Brush Crew, which is down at the southern end of the Bitterroots. And just on the job training, I learned how to saw. I learned how to plant trees. I learned how to... What we call pimp on a fire is to be a Sawyer support and you carry the gas around and you carry their saw and whatnot. And then we were on a lot of fires and the Sula Brush Crew was an initial attack team. So you had to be ready to go. You know, if you get a fire, you had to have your bag ready and you had to meet within like an hour or two. I don't remember exactly how much time we had, but you might be getting on a plane. You might be driving to South Dakota or something to put out fires. So My first season, I was with the Sula Brush crew. Following that, I was on the Bitterroot Hotshots. Later on, I was with the Flagstaff Hotshots. And I actually had a year just outside of the Grand Canyon in Arizona with a Tucson fire crew, too. That kind of got me out in the West, you know, and just kind of really being on the road a lot. And liking that feeling and probably that freedom of that too, like working really hard, but then having time to have a camaraderie with the people you're around and whatnot. So I kind of had that in my background also. This would have been the late 80s. I have the feeling now that it might be a little harder or more popular to be a firefighter, but back then it was it was a good job, but I don't think a lot of people knew about it. And when you were on a hotshot crew, hotshot meant that you were initial attack initial attack on a fire means that you arrive kind of first on scene and the other group that also arrives first on scene would be a smoke jumper a smoke jumper team when they fly over the fire and they'll jump the fire with their parachutes well we would be right in behind the smoke jumpers so hot shots are cutting line which means they're cutting trees down and then digging line behind that and so the team will consist of sawyers and then people that are digging line And you're doing that to control the direction of the fire as much as you can. And a lot of times you can't, but sometimes you can. And I did that for four years total. So it was a good experience. I'm glad I did it. It was a way for me to help pay for my education, too, to help pay for me to go to college. So eventually, I did graduate. I graduated from Northern Arizona University with a degree in teaching. 
one of those things, you know, when you're a kid and I wanted to be that stewardess and I wanted to be that nanny. Well, my mom tells me that when I was a kid, I would pretend to be a teacher and I would teach my brothers and sisters. And I can vaguely remember that a little bit. And I'm kind of bossy, so it's not surprising that that was one of the things that I aspired to. Anyways, I ended up getting a, a teaching degree And at that point, I was married to um, someone from the Navajo reservation, a Navajo man, and we had a daughter, so my oldest daughter. I ended up taking a job in Ganado. And Ganado, the Navajo reservation, takes up a good chunk of northern Arizona. And he was from an area not far from Page, Arizona, and I ended up taking a job in Ganado. And Ganado is, oh, how can I say, maybe about two and a half, three hours from Flagstaff which is kind of north-central Arizona. And just to give you another concept, it's also about um, maybe four hours from the Grand Canyon. So I taught there for five years. I taught fifth grade on the reservation and just really had a really great experience, you know. Had a lot of life experiences, too. I ended up, over the process, having another child, having my son, and then also getting divorced and another big thing in my life is I found rock climbing with a group of teachers that worked out there and that became kind of a a place where I kind of got my ego from a little bit I think it got me out kind of seeing the world when I fought fires you know after I didn't do a lot of camping because when you're fighting fires you're camping all the time and for me to think about doing that on top of it just didn't pull me a lot but when that was behind me and I kind of had some space in between I think that being outside was real motivational for me. So learning to climb down in the desert and camping out in the desert, and then at the same time kind of missing the mountains that I grew up with. So over time, I made the decision to move myself and two kids back up to Montana, and I did that, I think, in 1999, and kind of haven't looked back. And when I came back, I felt like I really came home feeling really connected to the mountains and I'm of the opinion if you grow up by the ocean you need the ocean if you grow up in the mountains you need the mountains and you know so your nativeness pulls you back and that's what happened so I came back and I taught a couple more years but through that I also knew that okay I've been somebody that has been able to do something for a few years and then I kind of I think I have a, um, a short attention and so I was ready to do something different, you know, and I've noticed that, you know, I did, oh, I fought fires, okay, I did that, oh, I taught, now I want to do something different. And I went back to school, and I originally thought I wanted to be a principal, and so I got halfway through a graduate program that was putting me on the track to be a school principal, and at some point I realized that I didn't have enough tact. My way of speaking to people and stuff is kind of direct, and at one point I realized I just, I'm going to have a hard time doing this in a way that people will find acceptable. You need a little bit of tact for principals, so you got to give principals credit for that. They have a lot of good person-to-person skills. I was really interested in geography, so I switched gears, which I don't recommend to people. You should not switch gears halfway through a graduate program because you will have a lot of debt. But regardless, I did that because I couldn't do it otherwise. And uh, I ended up getting a degree in GIS and geography, And it felt like I just clicked. I completely clicked because I've always had that, why are people here and why are they doing here? And why do they do what they do? And it's just really that place and people is really interesting. And you can apply geography to just about any concept. So it's really interesting. So I kind of am building this into my background again, this concept of place and people and travel and different places in the world. And 
I ended up getting a job with the Forest Service, not with the Forest Service directly, but I ended up working on a program with the Forest Service that maps vegetation and fuels. It kind of touched back on my firefighting background. I still have that job today. I, I manage that data and I pass it off to, I kind of am an in-between person that passes this data on to the people that push it out onto the internet so folks can download it, the spatial data. So that's in my background. And then doing this for a while, and I told you that I have this kind of short attention span on jobs, and I had this job for a while, and it's like, okay, we got to do something different. I need to shake it up. And so Jake and I, our oldest daughter, Tashina, she was going to school out in Tacoma, Washington, and we visited our friend Tobin, who happens to own a tea shop out there and we were out there a couple times because going out to see Tashina and at the same time we're also thinking you know what what can we do differently or what's something that would click with us and you know we had a lot of different ideas and in the back of my mind I thought this would be kind of cool I said this is kind of cool but no way Jake wouldn't be into this and then just kind of on the side one day he says what if we started a company like Tobin's with this tea company and I'm like oh my god I was thinking that in my head but you said it so that's kind of where that concept came from. And we, you know, we've been working on it for ever since. That happened in probably either 2011. I think it probably happened in 2011. And we were able to really push off in 2012. And with his background, you know, he's got a wide background, bigger than mine. And then for me to come in with my background and kind of working with different cultures, because I'd have been in a multicultural relationship and just came to tea from a really different angle than maybe other people would have. And he and I don't really have tea in our background. You know, what we have is that Tobin visited us once for Maggot Fest, which Jake might touch on. He left us some tea and it sat there for probably four or five months. And he left us a little, this kind of cool steeper. And I tried it one day and I'm like, wow, that was really good. That was really different. Cause I thought tea was peppermint, you know, and tea is not peppermint peppermints and herbal and it's just completely and we he left us this stuff that was just fantastic and so when we arrived at his doorstep at his tea shop we kind of had this eye-opening and saying you know what we think Missoula could deal with some tea or see tea in a different way and that's what we've been working on for the last nine years is bringing Missoula a different way of drinking tea and helping expand our understanding of it. That's the voice of Heather Krylik. She is one of the owners of Lake Missoula Tea Company, and that's where we are recording today. The trail has traveled is being recorded in the back room at Lake Missoula Tea Company here in Missoula, Montana. When we come back, we're going to take a journey with Heather and find out more about tea. The Trail Less Traveled podcast and international outreach programs are made possible by the support from listeners such as yourself. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can support the show on Patreon. Patreon can offer you a subscription-style payment method in the amount of your choice in exchange for priority access to the Trail Less Traveled visual series, exclusive content, behind-the-scenes footage, and ad-free podcasting. Please consider helping keep my fiscal raft afloat by visiting patreon.com slash trail less traveled Heather I'd like to talk to you now about cultivating a passion for tea and some of the travels that tea has taken you around the world I kind of hinted about my experience thinking that tea was peppermint and then as an adult in my 40s realizing that it wasn't 
I still have that memory of not so long ago discovering tea, you know, or just kind of having that pop or that eye-opening experience. And so when I see people that come into our tea shop or we're talking to people that are opening coffee shops and they try tea for the first time, I can really relate to that experience because it didn't happen to me that long ago. And I didn't grow up with tea in our household. When we had tea, it was generally herbal or, you know, like a peppermint or rosehip. So it wasn't the strong culture that you sometimes meet people and they grew up with it and having English breakfast and having it with their grandmother and having it with milk or having it not with milk and having it with sugar. I didn't have that. I had it recently. So it's exciting for me when I can share with people this pop moment when they try this and they're like, oh my God, this is so good. Or wow, did you see that oolong unroll? Or oh, you can brew tea more than once. So that's what is exciting for me is to have people have this experience. And the way that you do that or the way that you keep that passion alive as owners of it, as a company we discovered kind of right along is that we had to travel, you know, and it was kind of Jake and I both kind of said, wow, we have to see what this is. Because if you haven't seen what it is, if you haven't been to a tea farm, you just, you can't imagine it. You can look at photos and you can, it can only do so much to see a photo and having that experience, we realize we want to bring this experience to people and the best way to do it is to go there and come back and share. And so we've been doing that ever since we opened and we said, whoa, we got to go once we realized that, we had a friend named Joy. It was a Kenyan woman, and we were sourcing our purple tea from her. Purple tea comes from Kenya. Some of you might know this, but purple tea has been in the development for the last 25, 30 years now in Kenya. Conceptually, it's, it's a climate change tea. By that, it means that the Kenyan government realized that there's drought and there's freezing and that the tea, just regular tea, is not going to survive this change in climate. So they invested in coming up with an alternative to just straight tea, and they have a hybrid of what they call purple tea. And it's taking a purple plant, a tea plant, and hybriding it, joining it with uh, local plants from the region and creating their own unique Kenyan purple tea. There's other purple teas, but this is Kenyan. It's unique to Kenya. And Joy kind of introduced this tea to us, and it was delicious. We kind of fostered this relationship with her, and we were set to go to Kenya. And about that time, there was a bombing in a mall, I believe in Nairobi. And, you know, you can go on the Department of Homeland Security, or you can go on the State Department, and it can tell you, you know, kind of rating, you know, whether you should go as an American to certain places. And they suggested that we don't go to Kenya And so we kind of had to backtrack on that. And in the process of backtracking on that, Joy got really sick. And she suffered for about six months with cancer and died. So that was a really sad experience, but then also having a lot of communication with her during that process, too. Prior to that, and what kind of helped foster that relationship is we actually had her come to Missoula. And she gave a tea tasting. We used to be located, some of you might remember this too, kind of to describe where we are if you don't live in Missoula. The Masonic Temple is a fraternity. The Masons are a fraternity, and they they have Masonic temples all over the United States. They're called Masonic Temples. And we rented a little space upstairs in the Missoula Masonic Temple, and it was very tiny. But it was like, if we can pull this off in this very small space, I think we might be on to something. So we did that. We invited Joey over, and she came, and she packed that space. And we had to rent another space across the way because so many people came to taste that tea and to hear her speak. She spoke at the university, and it was just, it was exciting. And it was having that relationship with her was really exciting. And to see people's enthusiasm for it. So... 
I told you how we thought we were going to go to Kenya and we didn't end up going to Kenya for two reasons because of the violence at the time there and then also because Joy's health was deteriorating and we so we backed out of that but in the process of all that also I met Dr. Halim who is from Indonesia he's from Java the island of Java I told him about our experience of wanting to go to Kenya but then just feeling like maybe it wasn't the right time to go he ended up saying, why don't you guys come to visit our farm, Herondong, in Java, which you fly into Jakarta, and then you drive south down almost to the ocean. We said, sure, we'll do that. And so we ended up having our first tea experience on the island of Java. And you just it's so exciting when you've kind of built up to something. You're like, you can't imagine what it's going to be. And to drive in Indonesia or to be driven around in Indonesia, I think that most Americans don't have it in their genes. It's like, I cannot imagine anybody I know just driving around in Indonesia and the chaos of it, but it's not chaos. It's people know what's going on, you know? And it's like, oh my God, you had, we had to hire a driver. Our driver proceeded to take us down to this tea farm. The thing about tea travel is we have lots of people come into the shop and say, oh, you must go, you must travel over the world and go to the tea farms. And it sounds really romantic and it has a romantic angle to it, but it's very, very rigorous. It's not for the soft hearted. You have to be, you have to be willing to kind of roll with the punches when you're getting to tea farms. They're generally at high elevations and they are often not near populated areas. They're more rural. And so when you're traveling in some of these countries, it takes a while to get there, just like it would, you know, in the United States to get to some mountains, you know, it takes a while and you're on dirt roads. So it's just more magnified by being in these environments where you don't know the language and you don't really understand everything that's going on around you. And so we're driving down to Java, we're going to Herondong Tea Farm and we're driving like it felt like a million miles an hour on seeming the wrong side of the road half the time and swearing it's just it's just the driving is i can't overstate the intensity of the driving in indonesia anyways we arrived at this tea farm and it was just incredible you know and the, the, everyone really opened up their arms to us and dr halim was a fantastic host and he actually put us up in this place down in the little town that was kind of at the base of where the, their farm is located and we stayed there that night and kind of got ready to go up to the farm and I would say that from Jakarta down to where we stayed that first night probably took about five hours of very intense driving. And then the next morning we got up and we went up kind of up on the dirt road and through the villages and up into the up the mountain and up until we got to the top. And that was probably another two hours of intense, very hairpinny turning roads that could kind of take your breath away a little bit so anyways we arrive at this farm and we see the tea plants for the first time and they're beautiful it's just really peaceful and beautiful and just had a, an intense experience to see it for the first time and then to have everyone be really glad that we're there and this is the other experience with tea farms is when you arrive there they know oh this company is coming to come visit us and learn about us and and they're excited to see us, too, because they know that we're promoting their tea, you know, and there's a lot of pride in that also, that we're promoting the tea. And so we're investing in their livelihoods also. So the other point that I make, the hosts are always really generous and we're making an investment in them by traveling over there, you know, and putting the time and the money that it takes to do this and the energy. But they're doing the same thing. They're very busy people. You know, we're all really busy and we've got a lot going on and 
a lot of these companies are shipping tea all over the world also, but they are saying, I'm investing in this company that's coming to see us and we want to see you again and we're fostering this relationship. All of this is about developing relationships between people. So I have this long-standing relationship with Dr. Halim. Jake has this long-standing relationship with us. He knows our personalities. He's been around us and we're promoting his tea and they see us on social media and they know what we're about. We know what they're about. There's an element of, oh, this is interesting and fun, but it's also a lot more complex. And I guess that was something I learned over time. I didn't know that before we left, but I can tell you that as we made subsequent trips to different places and also back to Indonesia again, that it was about the relationship and and also trust. And so when people come into our tea shop, they know that we've formed these relationships and they trust the quality that we're offering them, the tea that we're offering on our shelves. And... You can go get tea anywhere, actually. You can put tea in, on the internet and a gazillion things are going to show up. And you can go get tea anywhere all over the world, but you don't know where the tea's coming from. You don't really know what it is. And you can experience this with a lot of different products. Under the lens of tea, it's important that you know where your tea's coming from and that it's grown in a way that that is sustainable. And so by sustainable, I mean it's done in a way that... It's sustainable for the people that work there. It's sustainable for the owners. It's sustainable for the land it's growing from. It's sustainable in the culture that it's coming from and that it's sustainable for us also. It's coming in and people are buying this product and drinking it and that it's a healthy product for them. It's a process you want to repeat. And I think that's what I'm getting at with sustainable in relationship to your community and the environment and the consumer, it's a relationship you want to foster, that sustainability. If you're taking those things into consideration that you're getting at a quality product and you're getting at a repeatable behavior for something that's healthy for you. So these companies, they know that. So we had that experience in Indonesia and we're like, okay, this is, we kind of have to do this. This is what we're doing. And we ended up going to Kenya not too long after that. And I talked to you guys earlier about getting the purple tea from Kenya. And I don't remember exactly how David and I met. I think he reached out to me on the internet. He knew that I didn't have purple tea anymore somehow. And he reached out and he and I just kind of connected. And I've had several people knowing that I didn't have the source for purple tea anymore. And I'm like, well, maybe it's just not going to happen. And then he reached out and we ended up saying, oh, do you mind if we come and visit you and see your farm? And I think I'd like to work with you. And uh, we ended up flying into Nairobi, catching a plane into Eldoret. Some of you that might have a Kenyan background might recognize Eldoret. It's kind of central, north central. And he picked us up. And he's the, you know what, he's a farmer. He's as close as I can get. You know, he's the owner and he's the farmer. He picked us up. And the first thing he did is he took us to a grocery store. <laughs> I'm like, what are we supposed to do? He's like, here, buy whatever you need. I'm like, what am I buying for us? Am I buying for you? What am I doing? And he said, well, buy food you want to eat. I'm like, okay. So we proceeded to buy like top ramen and whatever I could find there. Cause you know, you're in a different place and wasn't familiar with all the food, but he knew that we would be coming into his home into a different culture. And he knew that we might not be comfortable eating all the foods they had to offer. And he wanted us to be comfortable and have the opportunity to buy what we needed to be able to eat and you know not be too uncomfortable so that was fun we proceeded to stay at his house for a week I think he has about a hundred acres or so for Kenyan what does that mean well it means a lot of tea farmers in Kenya are really small like they might have tea growing in their backyard or just have like an acre or two really small 
it was in an environment such that he had a hundred to several hundred acres and that he trains people on how to grow purple tea. He's very passionate about purple tea. He knows that it's the way of the future for Kenya, that it's a way for them to keep growing the plants to, to withstand the hardships that come with the climate. We just had a really generous time with him. I'm always humbled when we go on these trips because people who seemingly don't have as much as we do in terms of material wealth, maybe, are just unbelievably generous. I think if you've traveled around the world, you have this feeling, you experience this, that people give. The generosity is astounding. Let's put it that way. We've stayed with him and we've kind of gone on a couple of family trips with him and his wife, Bernadine, and their daughter. And at one point I said to Jake, we were staying in a room in his house, small house, but beautiful home. We thought they had an extra bedroom and they, they were staying in this other bedroom and we realized we were staying in their bedroom. They've given up their bedroom for us to stay in their house. They were in their daughter's bedroom, kind of the three of them were in there while we were their guests in their house. And that was his commitment to me and to us and to Lake Missoula Tea Company and to Jake and I. He's like, I'm going to give you the bed, my bed, so you guys can sleep in here while you, to make you as comfortable as possible because I want to foster this relationship. Just this morning, he and I were talking and, you know, we're just kind of exchanging. We had to have something paid for the FDA and he and I were back and forth and I've got a shipment coming. So I talk to these people all the time, you know, and I'm talking to a gal that we work with in India that I'll talk about later, but these people have become my friends, you know, and we're, we're talking often about business and often about shipments and what, but it's also about their lives and how their children are doing and their aspirations and their concerns and being really concerned about us during COVID and us also being concerned about them, you know, and talking about that, but he's doing fine right now. You know, I think it's hard. He wasn't specific about what was hard about it. I think he has some challenges, Moving products from point A to point B, I think, is a lot slower, getting things on ships and stuff like that. But for his family and his farm, I think they're doing okay. That's the voice of Heather Krylik. She is one of the owners of Lake Missoula Tea Company, and that is where we are recording the trail as traveled today in the back room, surrounded by tea. Hello there. Mandela here, your host of the trail as traveled. And I want to take a very short break to thank our sponsor, New West Knife Works. When you love the tools you use, everyday chores become a joy. A finely crafted knife is an extension of the hand that welds it. That's the motivating idea behind New West Knife Works founder, Corey Milligan. Milligan moved to Jackson Hole to pursue the good life in his early 20s. To earn a living while enjoying the outdoors, he worked as a line cook in local restaurants. His interest in cutlery came from the desire to make a knife that would better express his love of cooking. New West Knife Works was born out of that passion, a passion which continues to keep the company on the cutting edge. All of New West Knife Works culinary, hunting, and recreational knives are made in the Tetons with the finest American steel and tested by the professional chefs, guides, anglers, and hunters of Jackson Hole. From the New York Times and Wall Street Journal to Bon Appetit and Forbes, top tastemakers appreciate cutlery that is as beautiful as it is useful. Visit newwestknifeworks.com. Today, the trail less traveled is being recorded at Lake Missoula Tea Company, nestled here in the mountains of Missoula, Montana. We're sitting in the back room surrounded by beautiful tea, and we are with one of the owners, Heather Krylik. So, Heather, I would love to continue talking to you about 
travels that T has taken you around the world. I will go back to India again. I have no doubt about it. But we get tea from two people in India. And I'm going to focus on the, the source that we get from Darjeeling. And it's called Darjeeling District, actually. And that tea comes from an estate called Naxalbari Tea Estate. And it's owned by Sonia Jabbar. And so we arrive there. You think that India is going to be chaos and tons of people. But if you get out of the cities, India is just rural, you know. And it's like you might find anywhere else in the world. The reason why I wanted to talk to you about Nexalbari Tea Estate is those of you that know me, and if you don't know me, I'm, I'm fairly serious. You know, I, I th- take things serious. I'm kind of literal, and it's hard to get me kind of fired up or whatever or passionate, and I got really passionate about Sonia's story, and that's not part of my personality to really get behind something like that. I related to her, for one, because she's a single mom. She has a little girl, her little girl at the time, we were there about three years ago, and I think her daughter was about four or five. I saw myself and some of her, you know, what she was going through and experiencing. And then also the fact that she took on this farm after her mother died. So this farm, Nexobari Tea Estate, had been in Sonia's family. I think she's the fourth generation, but her mother died unexpectedly. And she, by trade or by profession, was a journalist and an activist journalist in the Kashmir. And so she was used to dealing with a lot of, talking about a lot of violence and kind of extreme situations and politics between India and Kashmir and whatnot. And she had to change her direction pretty abruptly. And she chose to, she didn't have to, but she chose to do that. And she took all of her background and her passion and her activism with that decision. And she has since made this Nexalvari Tea Estate, she's had several goals. The goals that kind of stick out in my mind is that she wanted to make it a place where animals could pass freely without harm, and specifically elephants. So elephants in India kind of have a different relationship where they're revered, but they're also, they fight against them at the same time because they can be dangerous, or the human interaction can cause them the interaction to be dangerous. And both elephants and people die because their habitat is shrinking. We know that animals' habitats all over the world are shrinking. And so Sonia recognized that, you know, where are they going? You know, we're, we're letting them go nowhere. You know, they're running into walls everywhere they turn. So she made this decision that she was going to create a corridor, or more than one corridors, through her tea estate. And so she has since, and even while we were visiting her, we could see that they were transplanting elephant-friendly type plants that elephants liked in the way so that they could, you know, come and eat and be safe. At the same time, she was also training nearby villagers on how to interact with elephants when they came, how to be calm, how not to shoot guns, how not to shoot firecrackers, how to relax and step back and give them room. And she also came up with an insurance program with the local government. If the elephants trample their crops, they would get insurance for the loss of food. And I think that's probably an ongoing project, but something she's very passionate about. So since then, I know that elephants pass through her property. She's sent me numerous photos and videos, and these elephants come more than once. So, and I said, how do they know? I said, they must be communicating with each other, and she said, they are. They communicate with each other, and they know to come back, and they know it's a safe place. That's a really tremendous thing. One of the things she does to help make that happen is she has a program called Hathi Shanti, which means elephant education, environmental education for young children. So all of these farms, so it's another thing, kind of a a concept around tea estates and tea farms, is that they support the communities around them. 
Every company we work with, this is what they do. So the people that live nearby work on the farms. They, in turn, end up sponsoring the education and teaching of the kids and the schools. Just a lot of like extracurricular activity that might happen around a village. The farm is really integral to making that happen. And in some cases, some farms also are responsible for their health and different programs like that. But Sonia took on this the young children's education of the environment. And I think it's something that's incredible. Another thing that she does is, because she's the only female I've ever met that owns a tea farm, directly, I know of another woman in Colombia, Carlotta, changing subjects a little bit, but she's not the entire owner. Her whole family owns it, but she's the most outspoken and kind of the leader, so a little gray there. But Sonia's the only actual owner that's a female that I've ever met or heard of. She hires women. Other farms also hire women, but she promotes women. So there's women of position and power on this estate. And when you're there, you can tell it's really light. I just could feel really connected and see that it was a little bit different. Um, And so women, one of the women that was promoted or had a position of power was the gal that ran the nursery. So that was really cool to see. And then when we were inside the factory, all tea goes through a factory. It gets produced. There was several positions were managed by women, too. So that was really cool. And it was, for me, coming from a woman that had maybe coming from different ba- a different background, not a traditional kind of background like being a firefighter and having different experiences like that, that was good to see. Another thing on her farm that she did was to transition it into organic. And I think that part of it had been organic initially, but... One of her goals is to make it organic, and that's a long process because if you if you take a plant that's used to getting a pesticide of sorts and whatever, and then you take that away, well, they've lost their defense mechanism, and you can't pick that plant because it would destroy the it would kill the plant. So it takes about two years to transition from non-organic to organic, and so it's a process. So that's something that she's also working on. And at the same time, all this is happening, and she's making these big decisions and making these changes on her estate. The tea market in India is not doing great right now. You know, there's a surplus, and um, there's a there's a, just a lot of people are transitioning over to tea that typically didn't grow tea, and it's becoming a little bit of a monoculture, which it's a mixed bag because people see it as a way to make money, but at the same time, if everybody's selling the same thing, it drops the market. And so she's had those challenges. And so we WhatsApp a lot, you know, about some of the stresses she's had. I'm passionate about this farm because she is concerned about her community and the people and the children, and she's concerned about the animals and the elephants and all animals that pass through. She's concerned about the environment and wanting to do good, and you know what? Her idea is, this is the way. You know, you have to do it this way because we're not going to be here forever if we don't figure out how to do this right, and we have to do it now. It's not for our kids to do. It's not for later. It's to do it as right as you can right now. And she's inspiring to me that way. You know, she gives me words of wisdom here and there. and Like live in the now, let things go. And uh, it's funny, when I'm kind of down, she can give me positive reinforcement. I can tell she's kind of challenged. I feel like I can give her kind of support and feel like, you know, we're thinking about you across the world. That's the voice of Heather Krylik. She is one of the owners of Lake Missoula Tea Company. And that is where we are recording the show today in the back room. I just want to say thank you, Heather, so much for your time and energy joining me here today on The Trail Less Traveled. Thanks, Mandela. And then let's end your show with some advice. Something that I couldn't have told you 20 years ago, but I can tell you now, or let's say even 10 years ago, is 
the world is small, you know, and every time you open your door a little bit wider and you step out a little bit further, you go somewhere you haven't been before or you get out of your comfort zone, you realize that we all have a lot in common, you know, and you're meeting these people all over the world. Let's say you go to anywhere, you're going to get a slice. You're going to get a really thin slice of their culture and you're going to find that they're caring and they're kind and they're loving and they care about their families and they care about their governments and they care about the world, you know, and it's not us against them. They're wanting goodness everywhere. So when you do this, the world is small, but that's a good thing too. You know, it's not so foreign. And with the internet and with our phones, we have an opportunity to have relationships that we never would have had before. And I think that's really beautiful. The other thing, and my youngest daughter, Violet, when she was about eight years old, she came up with this expression, kindness is coolness. And you're never going to go wrong if you're kind, you know, when you're meeting new people and you're in new places, be kind and humble and you'll be amazed at what will come back to you. You know, and it's simple. It's kind of the golden rule, I guess. Treat others as you'd like to be treated, and you just will be amazed, you know. And if you're in business, it's going to grow your business, you know. And if you're just like, you know, in your family, it's going to grow your family. So we all have things to work on. We're not always perfect. That's something to strive for. So the world gets bigger when you travel. And also be ready to travel lightly. You know, I think that's all really key. You don't really need very much. And if you don't have what you what you thought you needed, you can get it where you're going. Yeah. Because people everywhere else need what you need to. And be kind. And humble yourself, I guess, is part of that kindness. Because people know stuff that you don't know. And sharing is a really awesome thing. Sharing tea. And tea is a way to really connect people, you know, to connect the dots. And I'm not just saying that just to be corny. It's kind of true. It's amazing what will come out with tea, over a cup of tea. Heather, for someone listening who would like to support Lake Missoula Tea Company, we've talked about a couple of teas today that I know I'd like to try. What's your website? How can they buy tea from Lake Missoula Tea Company? Sure. Okay, so lakemissoulatea.com. If you're on the homepage and you're searching for a particular tea, write it up there and you'll find it. Or go to shop and you'll find all kinds of teas to get. You've been listening to The Trail Less Traveled, the Trail 1033's locally harvested adventure radio series dedicated to collecting stories and sounds from some of the most remote locations around the world. I'd like to thank my guest for this week, Heather Krylik. As always, I encourage you to support and shop local. You can find out more information by visiting lakemissoulateacompany.com where you can learn more about their elephant-friendly teas, Kenyan purple tea, and how to be sustainable in all areas of your tea consumption. The Trail Less Traveled airs every Sunday night at 6 Mountain Time. You can stream the show online at trail1033.com. We're also an award-winning podcast that's available on all platforms. And you can view pictures, outreach programs, and the full show archive on the official website, traillesstraveled.net. We're now also offering a visual series and a way to support international outreach programs on Patreon. You can check it out for yourself by visiting patreon.com slash traillesstraveled. My adventure tip this week, of course, involves tea, which is one of my favorite lightweight items to travel with. I just want to remind you to never make your tea using a microwave. One of the elements of a perfect cup of tea is brewing it at the right temperature. And microwaves simply don't give us control over the temperature of the water. So it's best to use a kettle. Furthermore, various teas have recommended temperatures and brew times. 
which is most certainly worth looking into when you're brewing a perfect cup of tea. Well, that's it for this week, my friends in Missoula and around the world. But until next week, please do something for Mother Earth and get outside, shred the gnar. Because as you know, the gnar does not shred itself. This episode's Patreon shout-out is for my good friend, Emily Johnston. I would like to thank Emily for her support on Patreon, as well as accompanying me on the Grand Canyon this summer. Emily has asked for her shout-out this month to be going towards Milo Fowler. You can follow him on Instagram at Navajo Milo. Milo was born in the Navajo Nation capital and raised in northern Arizona. His photography career started without a camera as he guided wonderful people through the now famous Antelope Slot Canyon. Milo has traveled all over the world and focuses on capturing what he calls the sweet light of Navajo land and helping others learn about their cameras in his workshops. His images have been featured in National Geographic and in magazines like Native Peoples, Arizona Highways, and many more. His photography has led to powering over 250 homes across Navajo land. At this moment, roughly 20,000 homes don't have access to electricity or running water. Milo Fowler has been using the proceeds from his photography and work to install Goal Zero solar kits on homes and Hogan's. I highly recommend that you check out his work and support him by visiting fourthworldimages.com. Again, this episode's Patreon shout-out is for Emily Johnston, and she has dedicated it to Milo Fowler. Find him on Instagram at Navajo Milo. That's M-Y-L-O. You too can get a shout out by becoming a patron. Visit patreon.com slash trail less traveled.